all my friends and everyone interested in this ancient text called the Bible, written hundreds, thousands of years ago, and yet it's supposed to mean something to us today. I'm your host, Jonathan the Dumb Christian, and it takes me two weeks to grow a five o'clock shadow. Today, we're going to be looking at the first part of John chapter two, where we encounter Jesus at a wedding in a small town called Cana. So, We might get a little excited, a little colorful, and the Bible's about to get very real. So buckle up and welcome to Dumb Christian. In the first 12 verses of John chapter 2, we're told about a wedding taking place in the land of uh, Israel in a small town in northern Israel, a small town called Cana. It's a very small community. This is where Jesus and his entourage are hanging out, where he grew up. These are his people. And he is attending a Jewish wedding 2,000 years ago. We might look at uh, our traditional weddings today and and recognize, realize that they're very, very different to a, a traditional wedding 200 years ago, 500, 1,000 years ago, to the weddings that took place 2,000 years ago. And this is the same for weddings that took place 2,000 years ago. They looked very different from the weddings before them. And so there is actually a Jewish tradition of how the wedding celebration evolved. And it started, it used to be that a man and a woman would meet on the street, agree that they both wanted to get get married, go to his bed, have sex, and poof, they're married. The two become one flesh. This was the original way that marriage worked. But then God gave the Torah, which is the law, the which starts in Exodus, goes through Leviticus, includes the Ten Commandments, but it, it, there's like over 600 of all these laws. And so once the Torah came into the, into the picture, once God gave the law, then they added and they said, we also need to have witnesses. We need to have people, not, not witnesses to them having sex, but witnesses that say, yes, we acknowledge, we can publicly... Uh, declare that this couple agreed they want to get married and they are now married. Witnesses, not just that they went off and did it secretly themselves, but so that the community knows. And then they developed these contracts, these written out um, papers that said, yes, we are legally bound, we are married. And then this incorporated into the papers were involved in a ceremony where they would write their names and the witnesses would also sign. And then they would exchange these vows. They would exchange gifts, um, a very similar way in which we exchange rings and vows today. A little bit different. But as the culture developed and evolved into weddings during Jesus' day, they They met in the street, they agreed that they wanted to get married, and then the man and woman went through an engagement uh, waiting period where they were engaged or betrothed. And this lasted about a year. This would give the man enough time to go build a house, prepare whatever he needed to do so they could get all the wedding arrangements done, they could pick their colors, they could make sure the bridesmaids had the right dresses, and everyone was ready for the big day. This caused some weird, like, 
issues sometimes because once they're betrothed legally, they're bound to each other. They can't go marry someone else, but they aren't officially married and they can't go have sex until they have the nuptials, until they actually have the ceremony. By the way, I had to look up nuptials because I didn't know what it meant, but it basically just means uh, the wedding ceremony, the vows, the, the, the thing you go through that declares, hey, we are married. We, we, uh, till death do us part, I do. And the betrothal period was a waiting period. And this caused some conflicts like during World War II, World War I, where some soldiers maybe had to go to battle or they uh, had to flee. One family had to flee. And so they didn't actually get to go through the marriage process. And so they were left legally bound to each other, but unmarried. And, and uh, even back then there was, you know, like issues. But this is how it went down. There was a betrothal, and once we had an engagement party, we said, hey, we're going to get married in one year. There was like a big party, and everyone would get excited. They'd wait a year, and then they would have the big day, the ceremony, the party. And this is the party that Jesus is at. It's been a year since this couple, we're going to call them the uh, Bertram Stransons, um, and they've been waiting a year to get married. And now the big day is here in a very small town of Cana where they don't have Telemundo or the global news network. They don't even have local news. They, all they have for news is the hot gossip of the day. And so if something was worth talking about, it was talked about a lot. And the things that were worth talking about were those things that were like really incredible. Oh my goodness. The Bertrandsons are getting married. Now that's something to talk about. And I can even think of and remember one or two weddings that I have been to. And I think, man, that was a killer party. That was the shit. I would go and do that party again. But then I can also think of a couple parties where um, I might be talking to my wife or my friends and we might reminisce about those parties and say, you know what? Uh, I will not be going back to a party at their house. This is how news spread like wildfire. And if there was something worth talking about, it was talked about a lot. Wedding parties fall into that category. Wine is a essential item for Pretty much every Jewish festival, celebration, party, Sabbath, Jubilee, um, it's required if we go through um, the Leviticus and some of those laws where they've instituted the festivals. Wine is required, but it's also just essential because wine is used as one of two primary elements that bless and anoint people. We see oil throughout scripture as a picture of Holy Spirit, God anointing, but also wine. Wine is a way to anoint and bless. And so wine would be used abundantly during these types of celebrations. And um, there's a particular uh, um, association between Sabbath and marriage. Wine is used in both the, uh, the Sabbath rest, which is every Seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, and wine is used to to sanctify that day and say this day is special and to set it apart to make sure that it's not uh, diluted or or corrupted by other practices, other religions, other 
um, habits during the day. The wine is used to say this day is special and it's unique and we are going to honor the Sabbath day. And wine was a crucial part of that. In a very similar sense, the wedding, the marriage, holds a close association to Sabbath. And so wine also is crucial and essential for part of the celebration, the day, the party, to set it apart, to sanctify and say this marriage is sanctified and it's set apart. There is now fidelity between these two people. They will not go off and wander. They will be faithful to each other. And the wine sanctifies and sets them apart, anoints them in their new journey. Sabbath rest is a very unique quality among um, the ancient Near East, uh, within the ancient Near East. It's among the Jewish nation, and we don't see it anywhere else. They they didn't have a 40-hour work week. Work five days, take a two-day vacation. On holidays, you get a three-day vacation. Who knows? Wow. They, They worked every day. You woke up, collected the eggs, milked the cow, fixed the fence, and did whatever work in the field needed to be done until the day was done, until it was over. And that that was your life every day. You wake up, you work. Until the work's done, you go to bed. And this will get mundane really quick. I mean, we have a 40-hour work week, and we still live like that. We we dread going to bed Sunday night because we have a case of the Schmundays, right? Where we just dread the idea of having to wake up in the morning and go back to our mundane jobs. So Sabbath rest, every seven days, a whole day dedicated to rest. And God's kind of rest we see is taking a step back from the work, looking at the work, and being able to appreciate the value of the work. Not just work, 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 and then someday it's all done. But working and understanding and appreciating the value of the work done. This is Sabbath rest. And Sabbath rest actually gives brand new meaning to the work that you're doing because it's not just this okay i gotta work to eat work to eat work to eat work to eat it's work work eat eat and look at that work i did i i I accomplished something there i appreciate i understand the value of what was done there so taking time to sabbath rest actually gives a new perspective on the work that you're doing it actually is accomplishing something you can see that you can just sit back and say okay yeah We're doing something here. We're making something work. In the same way, marriage, again, closely associated with Sabbath rest, gives new meaning to the everyday mundane humdrum routine of life because now you're not just working to pad your bank account or save up for a vacation, but now you're working to provide, to take care of, to sustain and and thrive in your marriage as a family, to take care of your wife, to nourish, take care of your kids, to create an environment that is healthy for them, to create something new and incredible. So marriage gives new meaning to everything in your life. So what ends up happening is in the in the Jewish culture, they it becomes a seven day festival celebrating marriage because just as it took seven days in the Genesis account for God to create the world brand new and fresh, the marriage celebration is a reflection of your whole world is being made brand new, fresh all over again. 
and it's reflective of God's way of creating new things. And this is good. And if you're going to be partying for seven days, you want that story to be told, wow, the Bertram Transonsons really know how to throw a creation story party when they got married. You better have enough wine. Jesus and his entourage are hanging out in Cana. They're part of the community, so they are at the celebration. They're kind of keeping to themselves, you know, not causing a whole lot of chaos. But they're they're meandering, meeting new people, exchanging business cards. They honor and greet the bride and groom as they see them. And then something terrible happens. In case you didn't guess it, they ran out of wine. Mary, Jesus' mother, is frantic. She is mortified. She's good friends of the mother of the bride. And I'm just guessing that's her relationship. She's good friends with the mother of the bride and doesn't want anyone to know that they run out of wine. And she is terrified at the idea that her best friend from the bridge club is going to have trash talked about her throughout the community, potentially for years to come. Because the bride and groom aren't the only ones who are going to be ridiculed for this. But it's going to spill over to their parents and their families. And so Mary comes up to Jesus frantic. They've run out of wine. And Jesus just kind of like shifts, looks over at his mom and says, woman, what does that have to do with me? Now, he actually says that. And we kind of laugh because in our culture, that's not, there's no way to talk to your mother. Uh, and I can't tell you how or why it works back then, but in that culture, in that time, that was a way to honor his mother. And he says, woman, this has nothing to do with me. I, I, I appreciate the predicament you're in uh, and that your friends are in, but this has nothing to do with me. And I don't know what Mary thinks Jesus is going to do. At this point, we don't know if she's ever seen him do supernatural, miraculous things. So I don't know if she expects him to do something supernatural, miraculous, or if she just expects him to like take the stage and start giving like a really incredible sermon just to distract everybody from the fact that they've run out of wine. Whatever it is she thinks he's going to do, she believes he can do something. So she gathers the servants from the party and she gathers them around and she brings them to Jesus and and she says, whatever Jesus says, do it. Now, the author of this gospel, John, tells us that Jesus has been God from the beginning. So Jesus is very well aware of the purpose and intention of the command when God says, honor your mother and father. Jesus was involved in writing that. So he's he's mindful of the importance of honoring mom and dad. And he demonstrates that for us. And I think that's just maybe an interesting side note for us to take note of and consider. So he says, okay. He looks around. He finds six stone jars off in the storage closet. These are big jars used for ceremonial washing, purification, to clean, to wash in, to kind of like scoop out, take a little shower in, um, and and clean, to bathe in. <clears throat> but they're off. They're not being used. They're empty. And so God, uh, Jesus says to the servants, 
go fill these six stone jars with water. Each of these stars, uh, stone jars can hold up to like 30 gallons. And so all together, we're looking at up to 180 gallons. And when the servants bring these jars back full of water, he says, okay, take a ladle, scoop it out. And then I want you to go take it to the master of ceremonies. Now, just like at a wedding today, if something goes awry at a wedding, you don't really want to bother the groom and bride with it, right? It's their big day. You don't want to cause any issues for them. You want them to be able to just enjoy it. And so there they had like a a wedding planner. Let's call him a wedding planner. The person in charge of making sure that the festivities go off without a hitch, everything is in order, we know when pin the tail on the donkey is, when the bouquet tosses, and when the garter tosses. And you just go to the the master of ceremonies, the, the wedding planner, to figure out what's next. And if there's an issue, we've run out of mini wieners, what do we do? Go see the wedding planner. In the same way, they've run out of wine. <clears throat> so they take this ladle that they scooped out of these jars they filled with water and they bring the ladle to the wedding planner and the wedding planner sips it and says hoopty hoopta hoya kanakta you guys have saved the best wine for last and he goes up to the bride and groom and he's like wow usually people serve the good wine at first to get people drunk so that they don't realize they're drinking crappy wine by the end of the seven day party but you guys have saved the best for last and and Jesus was kind of hands off with this miracle. He he had all the he had the servants do everything. You take the jars, you fill them with water, you scoop it out, you give it to the master of ceremonies, the the wedding planner. And so Jesus really wasn't at the forefront of this this miracle that happened. He he tried to stay in the background and we'll we'll touch on why here in a minute. But the only people who knew that he was involved and that he was really the source of this good wine were the servants, his mom, and the disciples. And John, the author of this book, says um, this was the first of Jesus' miracles that manifested his glory, that revealed who he was. And it says, and that's when his disciples believed in him. Now, they were following him to learn from him like a rabbi, like a teacher. They wanted to to learn about God from him. But in this moment, they actually believed in him. Wow, this guy is the real deal. He has a divine, direct connection with God. There's something way more significant about him than just being a rabbi. And it says they believed in him. Why? Was Jesus so reluctant to step in and do something about the fact that they were they ran out of wine? It says, uh, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. It's not yet time for Jesus to what? Do miracles? When is the time for Jesus to do miracles? We're going to quickly discover that as Jesus begins to act in supernatural ways, miraculously heal and 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 provide for people that um, in, in a lot of different ways too, people are going to start 
becoming very interested in in Jesus and what he's doing and what he has to say. And this is going to cause people to start leaving their current teachers, the religious and political celebrities, the leaders in their communities. They're going to start leaving those classrooms, those churches, if you will, and they're going to start following and listening to what Jesus has to say. This is going to upset the system so much that these political and religious figures in the community are going to come together and they're going to say we need to figure out a way to shut him up and shut him down which ultimately spoiler alert will result in jesus being put to death now jesus death on the cross is is really his primary focus of of the goal of what he's here to do but before he goes to the cross there are certain milestones that god wants to accomplish that jesus is set on mission to accomplish to teach to do to reveal about god about himself so that it, the timing is right for when he goes to the cross. And he's saying, I'm reluctant to do a miracle here because I really don't want to start that snowball, that cascade of events before the time is right. So Jesus is a little resistant. And even when he does do the miracle, he's really hands off so that the attention doesn't just like trigger an avalanche of, of attention which will set in motion these this chain of events that lead to his death because it needs to be just in the right timing, God's perfect timing. Jesus also reveals to us a few things about himself and about how he feels about wine and weddings when he does this miracle. First, we've already addressed he, he, how he feels about honoring his mother, even when it doesn't quite sit well with what he wants to do. He makes sure to honor her. Second, he loves weddings and he he seems to really enjoy making good things. Making good wine is just reflective of the type of creator he is, right? At the end of every day, he didn't say at the end of day four, eh, that was pretty good. I could have done better. No, no, he says this is good. And so when he makes the water into wine, it's good wine. It's the best wine because that's just the type of creator Jesus is. That's what he's creating in us, good wine, good things. He also loves a good party, especially a good wedding party. Scripture tells us that the children of God, those who belong to him, are his bride, and that one day the church will be presented to Jesus as a bride arrayed in beautiful robes, spotless, pure, without blemish. Jesus loves a good wedding party. And he wants to provide the best wine to celebrate. And this is how Jesus begins to reveal himself to his friends, his disciples, his homeboys. And the word begins to start spreading about who this Jesus fellow is. Who we will explore more of next time as we wrap up John chapter 2 and continue to press into how Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples, to the people, and to the community. And that's in the Bible, so make sure to read it yourself. God said it the way he wanted to say it. He'll always say it better than I can say it. I'm just some dumb Christian trying to wrap my head around a wedding in Cana of Galilee and why Jesus would turn water into wine. I've been your host, Jonathan the Dumb Christian. I love you guys. Next time.
Guys, thank you so much for joining me at this wedding party in ancient Israel, in Cana of Galilee, where Jesus turns water into wine. Yeah. Be sure to share this with your friends, family. Give us a like and subscribe. Ring that bell and your neighbor will be wondering who keeps ding-donging ditching them. And we'll catch you guys in the next one. Love you guys. Oh, oh, oh.